David. And some aren't exactly sure of the context, but uh, some commentators have said that their, their thoughts are that this is specifically during a time maybe when Saul was persecuting David. And I had once preached in the psalm a while ago, but it had been a while, and in reading back through it, there were some interesting things that I had not observed previously. And so if we start back in verse 1, my outline for this message really is just Psalm 143. I think if we walk through this psalm together, uh, we'll see that it lays itself out pretty clearly. So in verse 1, David starts with this, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. So I was just intrigued by the wording at first because David comes on so strong. Instantly says, hear my prayer. It doesn't seem like he's being subtle at all. It's very abrupt. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas of mercy. He's crying out for mercy. And what is his basis for being so abrupt and maybe in some ways demanding is this, in your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. And then verse 2 says this, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. See, David is not coming before God about uh, these enemies, as we'll read about in verse 3, because David thinks he deserves deliverance. No, he goes before God, even admitting, listen, don't enter into judgment for your servant into judgment. He knows his sins. He says, don't treat me according to my sins, God, because I know no one is living No one living before you is righteous. But what does he say? In your faithfulness. Answer me. In your righteousness. He's accounting the character of God. He's not pleading and and crying out to God because he thinks he deserves, but he's crying out to God because he knows God's character. And he knows where he stands before God, as we'll see later. So once again, verse 2, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. He admits he has sinned. He admits he doesn't deserve this, but he still cries out because he knows God's character. So why is David crying out what we see in verses 3 and 4? For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground, and he has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Very vivid, very almost dark description of David's condition of his enemy and what his enemy has done to him. His enemy has first pursued him. So it is uh, as though it is enduring to uh, catch up with him. And once it has pursued him long enough and has caught up with him, it then crushes him. This sense of utter humiliation and uh, no, no power, being weak, being crushed under something great and strong. And lastly, he has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. So he's not just been pursued and crushed, but now he has lost hope. There's a sense of complete loss of hope. And we see that because verse 4 is the result of that. And he says this, Therefore my spirit faints within me, My heart within me is appalled. So because he's been pursued and crushed and made like those long dead, his spirit is faint. So we see first is David who is crying out to God, not based on his own righteousness, but on God's righteousness. He's crying out because his enemy has made him hopeless. 
and weak. So what is David's response then to him being crushed? Uh, sorry, for him being pursued, crushed, and made dead, we see in verse 5, which is interesting how it just changes like that. He talks about his weakness. And then verse 5 is this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. And I want us to do just a short little comparison here. So look at verse 3 and look at verse 5. There are specifically uh, three um, actions in each, well, three um, statements, you could say. So in verse 3, right, we have the condition of him under his enemy, which is him being pursued, crushed, and dead, those three words. In verse 5, we have remember, meditate, and ponder. And as we know, the Psalms, when they just, whenever a Psalms, whenever a Psalm is being written, not everything is exactly, sometimes it's as though they're repeating themselves, right? So like remembering kind of seems the same as meditating as it does pondering. But I think it's interesting if we compare verses 3 and 5, it seems as though that these are his responses to his enemy. So when he is pursued, he remembers the days of old. Whenever he is crushed, he is meditating on all that God has done. And whenever he is made long dead, he ponders the works of God. It's purposeful. It's not that David is just remembering them. It's that he's meditating, which means that he is purposing every day to think through what God is doing, not just a memory that passes by, but it's he's taking that day, that time, out of his day to think through what God has done purposefully and then to ponder, to ask, to say what value, what worth, how does this affect me? What does this mean to me? David is not just remembering, but he's also meditating and pondering. There's depth, depth to the character of God in his life. And what's the result of this, right? We saw that the result of verse 3 was that his spirit is faint, But the result of verse 5, one who remembers, meditates, and ponders on the work of God is this, that David then stretches out his hands to God like a soul that thirsts for a parched, in a parched land. Verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. David knows that he doesn't deserve God's favor. He said that. He said, enter not into judgment with your servant. He knows he doesn't deserve it. But when he remembers the days of old, he's looking back at God's faithfulness. Maybe not even just to him, but also to those in the past. And then to meditate. He's not just seeing them, but he's believing them and he's taking them to heart. And then to ponder is to say, this has an effect on me and what is this going to do? And that's this, he stretches out his hands, this picture of desperation, this picture of humility. He's not holding himself back, but he's reaching out. He's reaching out to God because he thirsts, this desperation. It's like they said that he's in a parched land and he is desperate for water to be restored. And so with this energy of reaching out to wanting to be restored, we go into verse 7 and now he's getting eager. And he says, answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. So now he no longer wants to be like those who go down to the pit, right? Which is similar wording to they have maybe sit like those 
long dead. He no longer wants to be that way. He doesn't want to identify in those things. He no longer wants to be humiliated under sin, but now he wants to be humble under God. And so he says, don't make me like those long dead. And then verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Not only has he now stretched out his hands to God, but now has now lifted up his soul. This picture of dependence, utter dependence. So let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. There's that confidence that tomorrow morning will rise and God will still be faithful. He has not changed. Make me know the way I should go. For to you I lift up my soul. Doesn't that happen sometimes? We think that uh, in moments whenever we're in great trial or trouble or deep in sin, and we just don't know the answer. I love how the psalmist just asks God, you know, just show me. I don't know. I don't know. He doesn't. So he says, make me know the way I should go, because he doesn't know. But he admits it. Make me know the way I should go. And then verse 9, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. So not only now have we seen someone who has stretched out his hands to God in desperation, who has lifted up his soul in utter dependence, but now we see someone who has fled to God for shelter, like a child fleeing to his father in a moment of uh, what they would believe to be crisis. It's that picture of now David is, uh, in a sense, scared, and he's running to the one thing he knows that is true, and that is God. He has fled that picture of fleeing, but he's going into the arms of God. He's not fleeing into his own sin. He's not fleeing into himself looking for the answers, but he has fled to God for refuge. And then once again, in a sense, he demands something of God in verse 9. Deliver me from my enemies. He knows that God, how can he have such confidence that God will deliver him from his enemies? And how can he be confident that God will show him the way to go? And in verse 10, he says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. How can he be so confident that God will lead him, will teach him, and deliver him? Well, he says it, because you're my God. It's not David saying he has ownership of God like he is my God. What he's saying is, no, you are God of my life. You are my God. I am affiliated with you. I am part of, uh, I'm, I'm one of your children. And we'll see here that uh, in, at the end of verse 12, he calls himself a servant. For I am your servant. So David has confidence in God's deliverance, his faithfulness, his love. Because God is David's God. It's a really simple statement, but the truth it bears is that David has faith because he says, for you are my God. Then he continues at the end of verse 10 to say, let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now David has moved from not just reaching out, not just lifting his soul, not fleeing, but now he's saying, you're good. You're good. He believes God is good. 
Not that he just does good things. But that God himself is the definition of what is good. As James 1 reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning, meaning everything that is good comes from God and God does not change. So the God of David is the same God we have today. And David knows this is a good God. Let your good spirit lead me. Like in Psalm 73, where Asaph says, for me, it is good to be near God. He leads me by my right hand. I just kind of picture when he says that, he's reaching up and God is just leading him once again like a child through a dangerous forest, just being led. For me, it's good to be near God. Let's look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. Now, there's a different perspective. You would think that David would want to be saved for David's sake. David would want to be saved for David's sake, would he not? What does he say here? For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. Because David has a different understanding of this situation. David knows one thing, and that's that he is one of God's children. So for God to deliver him, for God to be faithful, is for God to act on his own character. For your name's sake. David wants God to be honored. David wants God to deliver because God is faithful. Once again, we know from verse 2 that David's not confident in anything he's done right now when he goes before God. The only reason why he is so confident is because he knows God will be faithful to him because David is God's servant. So for your name's sake, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. All of these yours in verse 11 and 12. Your righteousness, your steadfast love, your name's sake. David's interaction with God, once again, is not based within himself, but based within who he believes God to be. Everything that we believe about God affects how we live. And so when we start looking into the psalm and how it can be applicable is, first, let's go back then. Let's look at the psalm. We got a picture of this whole, this whole psalm, right? The fact that David was in trouble. David remembers the things about God. He not only remembers them, but then he believes them, and now he acts upon them. It's this progression. So let's start back from the beginning. Verse 3, he has an enemy. So what can we take from this psalm? It's first this, realize that you have an enemy. And typically and unfortunately, our enemy happens to uh, really be our own sin. But we can't be purposefully, and some of us, and if you're like me, sometimes we almost try to be ignorant of the enemy. We try to think that if we just forget about it and shove it aside, that it's still not pursuing us. We think that if we've messed up once and we just kind of forget about it, that's not going to happen again. And we feel as though there's no need to confess, no need to move forward. But as we know, the enemy pursues, then the enemy crushes, and then the enemy makes us live like those long dead. So don't be ignorant of the enemy. Don't live as though sin has no consequence. 
It's like sitting in a burning house and everyone is telling you to get out and you stand in there and you say, well, if I don't believe I'm going to get burned, I won't get burned. It's the same as whenever we don't believe that sin has consequences, it's like though we stand in the burning house believing we won't get burned. Believing that it won't burn us doesn't mean it's going to stop it. So first, realize you have an enemy. And I kind of like to look at it like this, that this idea of us being pursued, David being pursued for us is though we are being tempted or if we're looking more circumstantially as though uh, things are coming into our life that are making life more difficult, right? So we can typically have maybe different responses to grief, right? You see those who grieve and turn to things like alcohol or turn to things like Um, depression, deep levels of depression, right? That is a response to grief. We also see responses of grief, like in Lamentations, where they're bringing their grief under the lordship of Christ. It's a righteous, it's a good grieving over their condition because it's not causing them to sin, right? So we have a response here. We have a response to how we deal with temptation or circumstances is to say, What will we do then when this happens? And I believe the answers, once again, are in verse 5. To remember, to meditate, and to ponder. So when you're being pursued, start to remember times of victory. If you're dealing with unrepentant sin, start to remember times of victory. And I'm not talking about your own victory. I'm talking about the Lord's victory in your life or in the life of that which we read in the Bible, those lives, people that God worked in and through. Start to remember those things. Recount God's faithfulness. The psalmist does this in so many of the other psalms is recounting God's faithfulness. But if you sin, if you fall, if you are crushed and humiliated, then start to meditate. Be more purposeful. Don't just remember. Start to meditate. Start to think on them all the time. Throughout the day, just start to think about what maybe you read that morning. Or maybe if you didn't get around to reading, just try to recount different things that God has done in your life. Start to try to open your eyes to see how blessed you really are. I know for me that the greatest lie that sin has ever told me is that I'm lacking something. Is that I'm lacking. As we know, it's a simple statement in Psalm 23 that we brush over so easily. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or in other translations, it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. But it's such a simple lie that we twist backwards because we're not willing to recognize the word of God. The Word of God is not just a necessity, but it's also beautiful, and it, and it reaches, and it cuts through the bone and marrow of the soul. So once again, remember, meditate, and ponder. Start to take these big, significant truths of the Bible that you read, or these significant truths of what God has done in your life, and start to say, because of this, when I'm in these deep circumstances, or I'm in deep temptation, or I'm failing, start to say, how am I going to take these truths and really start to believe them and apply them? Start to ask those questions. And if you're at that point and you're like, great, I know all these truths, but I don't really know what direction to go. Sounds a lot like uh, the end of verse 8. Make me know the way I should go. 
David knows God is good. David knows all these truths about God. But right here, he's asking God, make me know the way I should go. Make me know. I was talking to someone this past week just about struggling to desire to do things, right? So we struggle to desire to want to read our Bibles in the morning, or we struggle to desire to pray, and how awful that is if you think about it. And they just said this to me. They were like, you know, it's funny, but one of the things that I did to really help uh, move forward out of that was to literally just pray, God, help me to desire you. And while it may sound backwards, like, well, then it doesn't make, because you feel like you should desire, but like if God's, you know, saying it's all this weird stuff. But if you realize it's like, no, what you're doing is the same thing as the psalmist saying, I'm, I'm crushed. And it's to the point where I don't even desire to read your word. And I know I should, but I'm so sinful and so wicked that I don't even desire to read your word. So help me to desire. Make me know the way I should go. Make me know the way I should go. Let your good spirit lead me. We don't have to have the answers immediately. The psalmist doesn't, but he still trusts. He still trusts in the Lord. So once again, know your enemy and know how to respond to your enemy. Don't sit blissfully in ignorance, not willing to recognize your sin not willing to recognize how maybe you're letting your circumstances cause you to sin. Because here's what can happen. It's exactly what Paul is correcting, right? Paul makes a statement to say that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But then he has to back that statement up to say, Shall we go on sinning that grace will abound? By no means. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. He's saying, listen, just because God's grace abounds doesn't mean we're going to be arrogant and take advantage of it. He's saying, no, listen, we are victors in Christ. We are more than conquerors. So for us to continue in sin is to not only deny what Christ did on the cross, but then to to pretend to be losers in the sense that God has already won. So why pretend that you're losing? And I think David is, in a, in a sense, saying the same thing. He's like, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love. Uh, he says, I don't want to be like those who go down to the pit. I don't want to be like that. I don't want to feel like that. I don't want to be that way. I know that you are faithful. I know that you are good. So don't, once again, don't be ignorant of the struggle, the fact that your sin is pursuing you. Your flesh is going to want to cause you to sin. In those moments of temptation, in those moments of hardship, take time to remember, to meditate, and to ponder. Whether it's meditating and deeply pondering the scriptures, or meditating and deeply pondering all that God has done in your life. I once took time to just simply write down 100 sins that God had forgiven me of. The scary part was it was really easy, really easy. And then I did it again, and that was really easy. But is that, is, is that not a way that we could see God's faithfulness? Because that's what it is, right? The closer we get to God, the closer we get to an almighty, holy God, the more we see our sin. And so what is our response going to be? We we. Remember, we meditate, we ponder the works of God, and we know that he's faithful, that he's good. That even though the mess 
gets bigger and bigger and we see more and more of our own mess, we know God is still faithful and that his grace will abound all the more. So be willing to confess. Realize that God's steadfast love, number one, for his name's sake, so verse 11, number one, for his name's sake, in his righteousness and in his steadfast love, he will cut off the adversaries of our soul. So when we move from being humiliated under our own sin, right, this sense of shame and guilt, and then we move to freedom and hope and the character of God, there's a change there. We can have confidence that for God's and his own in his name's sake, that he's first going to deliver us, preserve our lives, that in his righteousness will bring our soul out of trouble, and that his steadfast love will cut off the enemies and destroy the adversaries of our soul. Start to believe those things about God. Take them to heart. So when you confess your sin, <laughs> it was a line in there, uh, before, be bold before the eternal throne. Be bold before the throne of grace. When you confess your sin, be bold like this and say, hear my prayers, O Lord, in mercy. Do not enter into judgment. My my enemy has crushed me. Crushed me. But I remember who you are. I remember what you've done. And I want your good spirit to lead me. I know that in your steadfast love, I know that for your name's sake, I know that in your righteousness, I can be made new. It's that sense of confidence. Be bold. I'm not saying boldly sin. But I am saying be bold when you confess. Be bold when you confess. And not, once again, not in your own righteousness, but in the character of God. Be bold in the character of God. He reveals himself in Scripture that we know that if we confess our sins, he is what faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just to, but then to cleanse us from unrighteousness. It's the sense of progression. It's not a one-time thing. We continually confess and he continually is gracious to work with us and to help us grow in relationship with him. So once again, know your enemy. Don't be ignorant to them. Number two, remember who your God is. He's your God, the Lord of your life. It's not your life, it's his. And it's for his name's sake that he does these things, not your name's sake. He is not loving to us because we deserved any level of love. For once again, verse two, no one living is righteous. But he's loving towards us because that's who God is. He acts in love out of his own character. So once again, know your enemy and know your God, that he is your God. And lastly is this, believe in your God. It's a simple statement, but believe in your God. Believe in his name's sake. Believe in his steadfast love. Believe in his righteousness. Believe in the things that you see. And I'm not saying believe as in know them in your head. I'm saying that in those moments of temptation, you choose to say, I'm going to throw that lie out there and I'm going to start embracing these truths. Flee 
Resist the devil and he will flee. So flee to God like a child to his parents. Flee to God. I think too often we give sin the upper hand because we don't take the proper time. We don't put the energy in to fleeing, to believing. I know that in my own life, like I said, that that lie of saying that I'm lacking something, the more I've gone to study Scripture, I'm slowly realizing that I am made complete. I am made whole. God didn't save me for my own sake, but for his name's sake. So once again, we'll just end on verse 12 with this thought. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. For I am your servant. God's steadfast love for his servant, for his children. We have to realize that even in our deepest and darkest times and our deepest and darkest sins, when it seems as though we have just decided to turn full 180 and walk away from God, that even in those moments, God's steadfast love is still pouring out on his servants. And I think that word servant gives the right picture. David believes that he is a servant and he believes that he has a good master, a master that he can flee to. So be confident. Be bold when you confess sin. Don't be afraid. Don't let let those little sins that sit around in your heart, don't let them linger because what happens when they linger, they crush you and then you're like those long dead. Sin makes life a miserable life. So don't let it live in your heart. You're a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ who our master has already won the battle. So live like we've won, because we are more than conquerors. Romans 8 reminds us we're more than conquerors, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. His, once again, his steadfast love is going to cut off the adversaries of our soul. So believe it and act upon it. I'm so guilty of letting it linger, letting sin just hold and wait and grow, because I'm not bold in the character of God. You will destroy the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas of mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. Let's pray.